Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. We are continuing in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapters 5 and 6 today, and uh, if you would like to watch the video portion of this uh, podcast, you can go to our YouTube channel, which should have a link in the description of this podcast episode, um, or if you would like to just go to our website, uh, resurrectionfbg.org, or just go to YouTube and type in Resurrection Fredericksburg, and our channel should pop up there, and you can watch the most recent uh, videos we've put up, which include... Um, streaming our divine services on Sundays, um, and also the Bible studies that we hold uh, here on Tuesdays. So um, without further ado, though, let's dive into our study on Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can't ever go wrong with the college for the word. You know, it's always a good one. I love the part about read, mark, learn, and inwardly, inwardly digest. We talked about that uh, when we did that book study on grace upon grace, right? Yep. They, and you know, I, I like our hymnal, and I like some of the updates that they've made, but on that prayer, they've updated it to say, read, mark, learn, and take to heart. It's like, I don't know, inwardly digest sounds so much more earthy and just like, yeah, I like that, I like that, you know, the way it sounds, it's real nice. Um, make sure this is actually have some audio. Yep, we do. You believe that we're streaming to the internet all from this tiny camera and my phone. It's pretty crazy. Um, Wait till the next generation. I know, right? You'll just have this, uh, I don't know what you'll have. Probably a pen sticking in your pocket. Yeah, something. Well, With I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy what they have now that, um, yeah, it's just crazy, all the, all, the, all the different stuff that they have for these things. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. But back when I was a child, mm -hmm. and we would sing hymns, the mm -hmm. hymns would always end with Amen. That's right. And they don't do that anymore. No, they don't, they don't do that. Yeah, the Lutheran hymnal, they have Amen. At my vicarage congregation in Ohio, uh, they had switched over to... The Lutheran service book, our current hymnal, fairly recently, like within a couple of years before I got there, and they always and, and so they kept singing the Amen at the end of every hymn. So it's kind of neat. Um, yeah, but I like that too because it's like a prayer. It's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this last Sunday when we sang "Salvation unto us has come," it's just ten verses. You know, this big monster of a hymn, but it's so great. I, I mean, it, it just. I kind of want to get in. I kind of wanted to get in the pulpit and just say, "What else do I have to say?" This right. hymn says it all, you know. Um, well, you could have just said, "Let's sing the hymn again." Yeah, let's sing the hymn again, and then Evelyn would have really had a problem. Uh, <laughs> but, 
one quick announcement before we actually dive in. Um, I'm, I'm still doing morning prayer. Uh, I, I was calling it matins because I was only doing matins. But uh, we're doing, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm doing morning prayer again. And I'm just, you know, for the sake of people's time and things like that. And, and some people don't like to sing matins all that much, which is fine. But for some variety, I was thinking about doing like a shorter spoken service. Like we have so many different prayer services in our uh, hymnal that uh, do something like responsive prayer. And it takes five to ten minutes, you know, something real quick. And I was also thinking about moving it earlier to like 9 a.m. and not 9.30, just the top of the hour. I don't know if that would help people schedule or you don't want to be here that early. I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Those are just some thoughts I have. But just so you know, we still have morning prayer. So if you'd like to come for morning prayer, um, that would be... It encourages me, because I'll be here anyways praying. Um, but it's always good to pray with others. Um, what time is the morning prayer? I, I'm going to switch it to 9, nine o'clock in the morning. Uh -huh. I mean, I think that's about the earliest I can get without getting people too upset at me for being yeah. so early. But, you know, if you can make it, you can make it. If not, don't worry about it. But it's always an encouragement to pray, though. Um, so let's dive in a little bit here into Ecclesiastes for this week. We've, we, we're plowing right ahead. We're in chapters um, 5 and 6. Um, for those of y'all who are just joining us this week, we, I, I handed y'all our previous sheets so y'all could look at those separately or on your own uh, time and personal study. But this is for this week. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. So this is for today. And welcome. And the thing is, uh, here, that's right. With this, it kind of chops it up a little bit strangely. I don't know why they did this, but on that on that last page, you'll see chapter six, verse one, through chapter seven, verse fourteen. We won't go into chapter seven this week, so just make sure to bring these back with you next week um, when you come back, so that we will. Uh, still be on the same page here. I just figured it'd be cleaner just to chop it up into the actual chapters. I think they're trying to go off of some kind of theme. Um, but as a quick recap from last week, yeah, from last week we were in chapter four. So let's just look at let's look at chapter four a little bit to kind of recap what we talked about. So for those of us who are here, what, what do we talk about in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes? So we see on Ecclesiastes 4, meaningless situations, right? Mm -hmm. So in this and the following chapters, Solomon gives us examples of things that make life meaningless under the sun. And this whole book is about talking, uh, it's, it's talking about the things that are done under the sun. That is just the things that people do every day. Um, and we've, we've, we've always been trying to uh, not soften it but hold this within the lens of Solomon pointing out 
just the meaninglessness of things if they're seen by themselves, right? Mm -hmm. That wisdom, <clears throat> wisdom is a desirable thing, but wisdom means that you are going to suffer for the sake of the truth, right? Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think we've ever touched on this yet, but you know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? So knowledge is the attaining of, of information, you know, uh, we, we know a lot of things, but wisdom is how, you know, in a very basic, basic sense, how we apply that knowledge in our daily lives. So, um, if we know, as Solomon is saying here, which he proves his case over and over again, uh, and, and it's easy to get depressed because he keeps saying, you know, you see these things, it's striving after wind. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. There is nothing new that's under the sun, right? That whatever has been will be, will, will be again, and then it will be no more, and this, that, and the other. You know, that if you're only focusing on your strife, if you're only focusing on your work, someday you have to reconcile with the fact that you will die. And if all you ever focused on was your work that you'll no longer engage in when you're dead, then what was the point of doing it in the first place? And he, he asks these rhetorical questions and he makes these statements so that we would really think and really understand what the purpose of our work in this life is, uh, what the point is, because he says many times, you know, um, that, you know, if you have worked for something and you gain a lot of wealth, you leave it to somebody who could lose it the next day. You know, then it's gone. So what was the point of you working so hard for all that stuff? And, and he says, you know, I have been the one who, I've done this, I've done that, I have had servants, I've planted gardens, I've enjoyed, um, you know, food and drink. And for Solomon, he had concubines and all these things that, you know, are not good to have. But he was exploring these things for the sake of wisdom to say, is, are these things worth going after? And he came to the realization that, no, they weren't worth going after in and of themselves, right? That he was trying to discern foolishness and wisdom. And uh, it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing. And we talked before about how this was probably spoken at a dinner party. You know, can you imagine his, his, his guests thinking, oh, here, here goes Solomon. There we go. <laughs> um, but he was the king, so he had to listen to him. Um, but he, had, he, had, he, has, he has good things to say. What we saw here from our, our worksheet from chapter 4, um, let's just touch on this real quick. Why the apply portion? Why do some people refuse to be content with less and insist on being discontent chasing more? And that's pulling from verse 6 in chapter 4 there, which says, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So why do some people refuse to be content with less and insist on being discontent chasing more? Human <laughs> desire, I guess. Yeah. Well, so what is this desire? What? Uh, yeah. Expand upon that, if you will. Like, 
this this desire is it a is it a good thing? Well, it depends on. Well, you want a bigger house. You want a pool <laughs> in the backyard. You want all of this stuff, and you know what? That stuff <clears throat> keeps you busy doing that stuff, cleaning the pool, cleaning the big house. You know, doing all of this, it takes you away from God. Then when you get old, you want to get rid of all of it. And, and then you want to get rid of all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You finally get rid of them. You know, you want to downsize. <laughs> yeah, there's a saying that says you own assets, but too many assets begin to own you. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't have that problem. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's the... Um, and most people strive for things to be looked at by their peers as somebody who has accomplished, has ability, and look up to, and rather than just getting them for your own benefit, there's always an underlying reason as to why you're striving so hard to accomplish that or this or that or get wealthy. Yeah. It's recognition by your peers. That's part of it, probably. I, you Ex know, expectations. Yeah. Too, like, well, that's what you're saying. Yeah. I know. When we were young in our thirties, it seemed like we used to say, "Okay, now that we're married, more is expected of us." You know. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, we can't just. And live in an apartment, you know, we got to move to a house, have mm -hmm. kids. And, you know, like Diane said, you pray for all of this stuff. And in our case, we got to the point, quit blessing me, Lord, quit blessing me. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you wish for a bigger house, and he said, I'm going to give you a bigger house, but I'm going to give you another kid first. Mm. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I didn't ask for that, I don't think. But okay. But there's a reason for your house though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll give you a house, but I'm gonna give you another son. I'm really gonna bless you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well yeah, and, and you know the Psalms talk about uh, I think it's Psalm one twenty I wanna get this right. Psalm one twenty five. Um or is it one twenty Seven. Yeah, Psalm 127, where it says, um, but, you know, the, going through all of Ecclesiastes, it makes me think of this psalm, because uh, it is a psalm, a song of ascents of Solomon, right? So you can tell that Solomon wrote this, because he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake, in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So you see that you know children are a good thing. 
the house that you have is a good thing. But there's also more here to be gained in understanding that there is a spiritual house that you have to that is that is built as well, right? And and you can transfer that to this church, right? That if you build this church or any church, if you build it without realizing that the Lord is the one who really builds it, that it's for his purposes, that it's for his goals of bringing people to salvation, if you don't have that in mind, you're building that house in vain. If you're building that house just so you can have great dinner parties, if, you can, if you're building the house of God just so that you can uh, gain more offerings so that you can have better programs and TV screens and, what, and, and, and bands and parties and all this stuff like that, you're building your house in vain. Um, because to seek those things out in and of themselves, apart from God's word, or doing them because you think that other people will smile on it because, ooh, look at all that's going on at resurrection, that we would have fun doing, as if fun was the only goal in itself, right? As opposed to giving praise to God, giving thanks to him for what he has done and delivering us to everlasting life. You know, then you do all these things in vain. Um, but also, he says, you know, the watchman, you know, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You know, that if you're staying awake uh, to, watch, to watch over your house or this, that, and the other, but the Lord, you know, the Lord's going to do what he will, do what he does, and he'll... He'll make things happen if they're going to happen. And that's what it comes to here, too. You know, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. That if God's going to give you something, he'll even give it to you while you're sleeping. It'll just happen. But if you stay awake all night, burning the candle at both ends, if you get up the crack of dawn so that you can go, 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 and make more, 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 then you're doing it all in vain because if God's going to give it to you, He's going to give it to you regardless of what you do. And that's not to say you shouldn't work for things, but that is to say that whatever you work for is a gift of the fact that you can actually work for it, and whatever's given to you is a gift from God. Right? We shouldn't skew our thinking as Luther talks about where uh, in, in the large catechism he says whatever you put your trust in truly is your God and I think a lot of people put their trust in their own strength they put their trust in their own ability to work and to make money and to have a nice house and all these things as opposed to seeing them as gifts from God saying Lord you have blessed you, you have blessed me right? you have given me these things that are truly great for me, for my family, and how can I ever thank you, right? It's, it's, it's something to reorient our minds and our efforts, right? Um, but back to the question, why do some people refuse to be content with less and insist on being discontent chasing more? I mean, there's such a thing as greed, right? Oh, yeah. There's such a thing as fear as well, that you fear your, uh, you feel, 
you fear poverty, you fear um, not being able to make ends meet, you fear not losing your power. Losing your power, right? Yeah, you strive for things. And it's funny how if you think about power, that the people who hold on it who hold on to it the tightest, they wind up losing it more quickly. Right. Right? Um, it's very interesting how that works. Um, or that people think that wealth is the path to survival and satisfaction in life. But as Solomon keeps saying over and over and over again, it's meaningless. It's striving after wind. You're trying to lasso a cloud. It's not going to happen. Or it's not going to last, at the very least. Right? It's kind of like what we talked, kind of like what happened this last Sunday with uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. That the workers who worked all day long and put in all their strive and all like they put in all their strife and toil and they worked and worked and worked and then when it came to the end of the day, when they were given exactly what they were promised, they begrudged the generosity of the Lord who owned the vineyard because he gave to the last workers who only worked one hour the same amount of money. And then he tells them, take what belongs to you and go. Right? Take what belongs to you that will feed you for a day. But anything more than that, it's nothing. It's gone. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Which actually the Greek says, or is your eye evil because I am good? Right? It's very some, something to think about. And with the eye, we covet. Right? When we look at something, we see it, we go, oof, that's a nice car. Oof, I like that house, you know? Or even worse, I would say, you know, or even actually, depending on, you know, where you rank the commandments, you know, ooh, you know, uh, some guys saying like, you know, ooh, he's got a beautiful wife, you know, or it's like a wife saying, ooh, look at her husband and how he does all these great things for her. I wish my husband would do that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's covetousness, it's greed, it's fear that the Lord will not give you what you need. It's all these things. It's our sinful flesh striving after things that in the end will just fall away. It'll just be dust. Um, so let's move on to chapter 5 here. We've got a good look at chapter 4. Uh, chapter 5, let's just read the first seven verses. So we can stay with this. Uh, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves here. Uh, chapter... Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Who wants to read that for us? 1 through 7. Mm -hmm. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Mm -hmm. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. 
pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Mm -hmm. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say that thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also divers, 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 yeah. that fear thy God. Okay. So, uh, we'll start with the look portion of our sheet here. So the fact that life is meaningless doesn't mean that worship of God is, is meaningless. Uh, here you go, sorry. <laughs> um, God is the only one who knows and sees all things. He controls all that happens on earth. Solomon instructs us on how to approach God. Uh, verse 4 you know, it says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Vow. In accordance with Old Testament law, people made formal oaths to God in response to blessings he had given them. The New Testament Christians do not have such laws, but in freedom they may make promises to God. I might correct this a little bit. Um... You know, we don't make formal oaths as much as we used to because there is now Christian freedom uh, to go and uh, go and do likewise, to go and love others as God has loved us through Christ, right? Um, yet I have made a formal vow. You all know what vow I've made? Sure. What? You said, do you want to know? Oh, do you, I, oh I said, do you know? You want to know? Yeah, you want your life to God. Yeah, I've made a vow. Well, first of all, I've made a vow, first and foremost, to love my wife and my family as a father and as a husband. You know, I've made that vow for sure, and I made that vow before God and man that I should uphold it, right? But I've also made a vow... Um, in becoming a pastor, right? In becoming a, you know, a, a father in a different way, right? A spiritual father, as it were. Uh, and to say, you know, I, I, just like with my wife and my daughter, I have a lot of learning to do. And I'm not always going to keep that vow. I'm going to stumble and things like that. But I've made this vow... Um, to be steadfast in what I've been called to do, right? With God's help. That's, 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 that's how all these vows end, right? With the help of God. So you make these vows, and um, it's not a matter of law, but it is a matter of freedom in Christ to make these vows. But that's the thing. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, Right? For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Right? Yeah. The IRS <laughs> says it's better not to file a return than to file one and do it falsely. 
which is just like that. That's interesting, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's all right. It's the government's trying to use biblical laws <laughs> yeah. in the secular realm. What I'd, I'd, I'd imagine it would make a lot more problems for them, too, if you filed a false return. You know, uh, it, that, that means on your end that there, there was either ignorance or malice that they have to investigate, as opposed to them just saying, just file your return, right? And just do your best on it. Make, make sure it's truthful and this, that, and the other. Um, and to resolve it, it has to go through the courts. Yeah, you have to go. It's a lot more trouble to resolve a false return than one that it that, that doesn't even exist, right? And, and we'll see this this happen. We'll we'll see something else take place in this realm of you know better, you know, better that you know no, nothing ever happened in this way than to do it wrong in another way, right? Um, we'll see that later on in chapter six, but. Um, Let's go to the discuss portion. What is the sacrifice of fools in verse 1? What do you all think? Speaking too much? <laughs> yeah, talking too much uh, as far as idle speech, right? It's kind of like uh, what James says uh, in his epistle. That the tongue is the the tongue is uh, the the master of someone's body, right? It, it, in essence, that how great forest fires are started by just a small bit of flame, and how a great ship is steered by a tiny little uh, by a tiny rudder, right? Um, that it. But also he talks about how now, was it, um, that if you are redeemed in Christ, that if you consider your mouth as a spring of water, how can a fresh water spring spew forth salt water? Right? It's not, it shouldn't be possible. You know, and therefore it's more like it, we should think of these things as saying, like, you know, well, it's foolish to say certain things out of turn. It's foolish to speak of things you don't know about. Uh, it would be foolish of me as a pastor if someone came up to me and said, Pastor, what do I do? And da, 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 or what do you think of this, that, and the other? And if I had no idea, but, I did, but then I started speaking as if I did, it's wise for me to say, I don't know, but I'll find out and we can talk about it later. It would be foolish of me to just babble on and on and on and on and on as if I knew what I was talking about when it's just <coughs> nothing, right? Just babble. Um, so yeah, foolish talk. Um, when a person deals with God in an irreverent way. Uh, going to church for the wrong reason. Sure, yeah. Going Go. there for the public appearance rather than actually to worship God. Yeah, going there for the public appearance, coming to church um, because you think it's going to merit you something as far as saying, uh, you know, well, I, I went to church every week and therefore God must let me in. It's all about, then it, then it becomes all about you doing something as opposed to God 
saving you and you going as a result of giving thanks and praise, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. What about someone um, seeking to bargain with God or deal with God as he would with another man, right? To say, you know, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do that, right? Um, if you... <laughs> If you give me that raise, I swear I will, you know, go to church more often or something. If you, if you give me this life that I want, you know, then I'll, then I'll do this, that, or the other, right? It's foolishness. Um, it's foolishness to think that, that, that God is a man to be bargained with, right? He will give you what he will give you, but still he will smile on those who do his will, Right? To, to say that, you know, there's something to be said, that if, if you go to church just so you can be seen by others as doing good, you're being, you're being a hypocrite, right? You're not going for the right reasons. But at the same time, can God still use that in a way for your good? Yeah, because you're still coming to church and there's a possibility that you're going to hear God's word and realize the thing that you're doing and repent and be forgiven and live a better life, right? That's what church is for. That's what church is for, right? It's, it's, it's not a place for... It's, a hospital is not for healthy people, right? right? It's for those that are sick. Yep. So, um, yeah, we don't, we don't come to church, and we ought not come to church to show other people saying, you know, look how good of a person I am. Rather, we come to church saying... I come because I'm not good. I come because I'm a poor, miserable sinner, and I need the one who is good, that is God, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem me, right? right. To remind me of my sin, but remind me of my salvation as well, so that I can go and love others as he has loved me. Um, any other thoughts on the sacrifice of fools in verse 1? A lot of people go to church to make connections. It's more like a country club. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily so bad. That's not necessarily so bad. Yeah, you know, the, 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 well, the thing is, is that if that's the only reason why you go, yeah, that's bad. For the primary reason? Is the primary reason, yeah. I, although there's, there's something to be said for, like, I've, 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 I've heard of other churches having in their directory, you know, if there's a person, you know, if they're a bigger congregation or something, and there's a member who's an electrician, they put his name and his business in there so that people say, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, Bill does good, he does good work. You might, you might want to call him and you can find him in the directory. Or, you know, you know, so-and-so's uh, a tax attorney or something like that, and he can help you out. He's a good Christian and he'll do you fair. Right. That's, that's, that's key. Uh, it's not about making connections, but at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to ask our brothers and sisters in Christ for aid or for, I mean, you may not get a discount, but at least you'll get good work and you'll get good service. Right. Maybe. God willing. <laughs> God willing. It's also good for churches that are large enough to go to find a good spouse, too, though. That's, that's true. Good place. That is, hey, that's a good, that's a, yeah. that's a good idea. You know, it's like, I, I think that, 
pastors and congregations ought to be more in the business of trying to not force people to be together, but at least aid in some sort of matchmaking. Uh, because, because if you're going to, it's better that, 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 a, that a young person finds their future spouse in church already than, than find them out in the world and then try and bring them into church. It's not that it can't happen. It's that, you know, the priorities for a Christian ought to be that you marry a Christian, right? That you marry someone who is a Christian. And sadly, there are a lot of girls out there who think, you know, oh, he's, you know, I'm going to work on him, you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to make sure like that it'll all just work out. It'll all work out because I just love him so much. It's like, well, he's not a Christian and you are. And as a man, he needs to lead your family. He needs to be the spiritual head of the household. He needs, the one, he needs to be the one to say, all right, everybody gather around the dining room table. It's time for morning prayer. You know, all right, everybody, it's time to pray before we go to bed. You know, sort of thing. That's a man's job is to teach his family those things. And if he's not going to do that, then that's a big strike, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, so how about point number two? What points does Solomon make, verses one through six, regarding how we speak to God? Let's start there. What does he make? What point does he make about how we speak to God? Don't be hasty just to talk, and let your words be few. Hmm. As far as prayer, possibly? Or just in general? I think in general, okay. both both of them. I mean, if you're talking to God, whether you're just saying something out loud or praying. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good thought. We were, um, in fact, Amelia and I were talking the other day about prayer <clears throat> and how um, Luther, always a master of words, uh, had a very interesting way of putting, you know, prayer. He was saying, you know, that if you're going to pray, let your words be few. Um, because if you're just going to go on and on and on and on and on and on, on, it's kind of doing it in vain, right? The Lord knows what you want. He knows what you need. He wants you to pray. And yet if you just keep on going on and on and on, I, you know, I, I can appreciate someone who can do ex corde prayer, that's prayer from the heart. I appreciate someone who can do that very well, very succinctly, very pointedly, and then say amen. But I've been in a lot of churches where they are, um, where like the pastor will just kind of ramble on and on and on and on. And like one, one time I visited a Baptist church and then, and then, and this, they weren't as structured liturgically as we might be. And they had this prayer at a certain point in the service, and the pastor was there, and he was praying, and he just kept going, and going, and going, and going, and going, and going, and he had a lot of filler phrases, like, you know, Lord, I just, we just, this, that, and the other, da 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 He just kept on go, 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 go. And I was just thinking, can you just say amen already? I mean, you've said this twice already. Can we just get on with it? Um... 
it's not that God can't hear that prayer or he doesn't do anything with that prayer. It's just that if you've made your point, make a point. Keep on going. Because the thing is, is that um, Jesus warns about this, right? That when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, and, you know, pray succinctly, directly. Don't beat around the bush. Ask God for what you want, right? Because when you start to add more flowery language, it's not a bad thing, but it can often lead to you thinking that, oh, I'm enticing God to listen to me more, right? That's what, that's what the pagans did. The pagans would babble on and on and on and on. They would, they would keep on talking as if God was someone, or as if their God was someone to be persuaded, right? All right, enough. Yeah, right? I heard you. We're done. Thank you. You know, get back to work kind of thing. There's a fine line, though, we got to walk there. It's a fine line, a fine balance. Because there's sometimes where you pray, and your heart is just so heavy. You want to get things off your chest. You want to talk to God, and you want to get it off your chest, and, you know, you can look at the Psalms of Lament to kind of give you the words in some way. But at the same time, if you keep going on and on and on in lamenting about something without any hope, it kind of defeats the purpose, right? Because the Psalms of Lament still have hope attached to them saying, but Lord, I wait for you. you know, I wait in your good grace to, to deliver me from these things. Amen. Right? <laughs> because it always has to lead to that. Because otherwise, it's just kind of wallowing in your despair. Not that you shouldn't engage God when you are in sorrow, because you ought to. That's what he's there for, too. He's not just there for the good times. But, yeah, when we speak to God, we shouldn't babble on and on and on. Uh, he says, what, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart, and let not your heart Utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. I mean, I think oftentimes we're also hasty with our words, giving excuses for what we've done wrong. Like, kind of like Adam. Lord, it was the woman that you gave to me. That's why I ate of the fruit that you told me not to eat. Um, it's not my fault. Yeah, it's not my fault, Lord. Don't punish me. Or when you look in the world and you see whatever craziness is going on and you say, you know, Lord, why, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Why, did, why, why are they coming after me? Right? Um, God does not want us to make excuses for our sin. Right? He doesn't want us to give him our ideas about how he should be working things out. You know, to say, oh, Lord, if only you would have just done this, it would have been so much better. Right? Oh, Lord, if only you would have, you know, given me what I asked you for in the first place, we wouldn't be in this problem. Right? Um, or he doesn't want you to say anything that assumes we know as much as he does. Right? We shouldn't be doing these things as far as, far as saying, you know, Oh, Lord, you've, you've let this calamity happen. How could you do it? Because now this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Look what you've done, Lord. Oh my gosh, people really do that. Who? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Of course they do. Yeah. Of course they do. Um, 
it should maybe be. Maybe they it, don't know they're doing it. I guess. Maybe they won't. You, you know, maybe they don't. The the thing is, yeah, let's Listen be charitable. He does it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that, Diane, our reaction should be exactly like yours, right? There are people who do this. There are such fools in the world that would cry out to God as if they knew better than him. Yeah, all the time, whether they know it or not. I mean, look at, I mean, look at uh, just... Mm. The things going on in major cities right now with riots, right? There are there are riots and there are you know there's there's all this calamity, people creating autonomous zones, all these things because they think they can do it better. They think that they have the right the right answers to things, and you know we we Christians we, and let me know if this is too political, but when it comes to things like communism. We shouldn't give them any credence at all. Right. We shouldn't give them one inch. No quarter should be given to communism. Communism breaks the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Right? Give, take from those, what is it? Um, that we should get, uh, take from those who, are, who have the means and give to those who do not. You know, it's like give, give from the haves, give to the have-nots whether they like it or not. That's stealing. That's theft. God wants us to have private property. That's why he gave us thou shalt not steal. And he wants us to yeah. use it properly. And use it properly for, your, for the good of your neighbor. Right. Don't covet what is other people's, but give to your neighbor freely when they ask. Right. Jesus says a lot about that. Well, to be charitable. Right? Yeah, and God also really, his primary desire is for us to pray. Pray for others. Yeah. I mean, because he knows what we need, and we know him. And really, it's futile, in a way, for us to pray because he's going to take care of us. Well, it's not... I guess it's not... Well, I guess, in a way, someone can see that. Yeah. But that's a temptation from Satan to say, you don't need to pray. Well... Right? Yeah, but if, if you're a believer in God, you're going to pray, but the prayer yeah. focus is going to be... Primarily on people in need, others, sure. and not so much yourself. It can be on yourself because yeah. sometimes you're in need as well. Right. But it should be a well-encompassed focus. Yeah, but it shouldn't be a prayer, I need more money or, you know, I need a bigger house or something right. like that because God knows what you need. Right. Oftentimes it should be a prayer that God's will be done. Right. And that whatever his will is, we know is good for us, even though at the moment we can't see why or how. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking back to seminary when we were taught how to construct prayers that were to be spoken out loud, that it always echoes back scripture and speaks the, the promises that God has given for you. So along with your request for, you know, maybe you need a bigger house or something because you have a growing family or something like that, you know, you would say... What was it? How was how did Dr. Green teach us to pray? Yeah, it, you can write your own uh, prayers by beginning with uh, I forget the proper terminology, but it's beginning with you know um, just just a good way to structure your prayers is to say is to call out to God by name, you know, Almighty. It's like, Oh Lord God, you and say what He does for you. Say how he has promised to do something. Say, you know, 
confess back what Scripture already says about him, and then begin your petition. Like with the prayer that we started this with, you know, Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for, for our learning. And then we begin the petition. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. And then the termination of the prayer, through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So yeah, there's, 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 and that's succinct. There's a lot there that you could pray more about and more for, but it's very succinct and straightforward. Um, but there are people who do cry out to God in vain because they think that they know better than Him. I think for us to think that that's not a possibility would be foolish on our part. Right? Uh, really, I think, it, I think it would be foolish on our part um, because there may be somebody in your life that does that and needs you to say with some encouragement, you know, hey, I pray for you all the time that God would lead you in the right way, that, that God would watch over you. That sort of thing. And they say, how can he watch over me? He can't even take care of this world. It's falling apart. It's like, well, but it's in his own time. His will is not always seen by us, right? It's unfathomable for us to say, you know, how can, how can God do such things? But maybe there's some good that will come from it. We just have to wait and trust in him. But right? the world's not falling apart. It's what man has created. <laughs> well, you know, the, the world is falling apart like an old garment. You know, it's being worn out. And man is the one that's doing it. Sin is the one that, sin is the thing that's doing it, right? Well, let's, let's move on here. Uh, keep talking about this over and over again because it's <laughs> just, there's so much here. Um, how about, what, what point does he make regarding our attitude toward God's position over us? Are you referring from your little sheets there? And if so, mm -hmm. what page are you on? I'm on the page that says Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Right okay, there. thank you. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, you know, we're looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and within those six verses, what point does Solomon make regarding our attitude toward God's position over us? in control and he's all powerful yeah he points out how there's this chasm right between God's understanding God's knowledge God's wisdom and ours right um, I think that next one regarding promises we make to God mm -hmm. that's a stickler yeah so let's move on to that one what what does he make about, what point does he make regarding promises we make to God? Well, if you vow it, you better pay it. If you vow it, you better come through, right? Yeah. It's better not to vow anything than to vow it and not do it. Right. Don't be hasty with what you promise. Uh, it's like, it's like, um, it's like signing, signing a mortgage knowing that you can't pay it. I mean, you're going to lose your house. It's going to get foreclosed on. Uh, if you, if you can, if you, if you talk the talk, you better walk the walk, 
right? Mm -hmm. Make sure, think about these things before you jump into them because to just jump into it is foolishness, right? She agrees. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, if there's any doubt as to whether you can fulfill these promises, don't hold back, wait. Right? It's, and, and to give an experience from my own life, as a pastor, I, I thought about becoming a pastor since I was in high school. But somebody, I think wisely, made me think twice about it. Because he asked me, he said, are you wanting to be a pastor because you actually want to serve God's people? Or do you want to just have the title and be pastor and have everybody like you because of it, this, that, and the other? And I never thought of it like that before. I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted. And I just thought, well, better just to hold off. And I held off. And I held off, and I held off, and I held off. And thanks be to God, because then I was able to get a little distance, gain a little wisdom, you know, live in the world a little bit, work a little bit, um, and then say, you know what? It's time. It's time to go. And then when I got to my first class at the seminary, which was for to learn Greek. My, my professor said, you know, before we even cracked the book open and started learning the Greek alphabet, he just said, I just want to let you know, because you need to know this, that just by being here in this room and setting off on the course that you are about to embark on, Satan has painted a target firmly on your back. Because if there's one thing, because Satan hates the word of God, and he hates even more faithful men who will preach that word. So if you think that you can handle it, or if you think if you want to go into this, know what you're getting into, basically. Know what you're getting into. Because it's coming. He's coming for you. And not just for you, but for those that are close to you to get to you. He's coming for you. And if you can handle that with God's help, then we'll continue on. And I just thought, oh, well, I moved all the way to Fort Wayne, Indiana from Texas. And uh, kind of already paid for this class. And I was like, you know what? The Lord will provide. Right. You can't do it without me. That's right. But yeah, if you're, if you're in any doubt, it's best just to hold back, right? So what does it mean, let's, let's move on then to point three, what does it mean to stand in awe of God? Fear God. Yeah. I mean, what is, what is, what is the fear of the Lord? Wisdom. Yeah, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To understand where you stand before God. Right? Um, That's very negative. Fear? That whole statement you made is a very negative, I feel. Okay. What makes you say it's a negative? <clears throat> You're already getting blamed for something you haven't even started. If you could. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, that I haven't, I haven't even started. I haven't started to even go to church, and you already are. Damn me. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay, well, the fear of the Lord mm -hmm. is to understand, it's a bit of respect. 
right? Yeah, that's too bad they use that word fear in there because of its real meaning or its other meaning. Well, that's how the Bible speaks, though. And <laughs> well, it's true. Well, yeah. it, does, it does speak in the Bible that it is a very fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you are... When you're outside of Christ, God is a fearful thing because you are under his judgment, because you are not saved at that point. Right. So there, it does encompass a lot of meaning. So there is that sense of reverence and awe and just sheer, you know, like amazement. But rightly, you know, God would not be worth praising if he were not something to be afraid of because <laughs> being afraid of it implies that it is something bigger and stronger than you are. Right, so and that doesn't mean you have to be afraid of the condemnation. Right, once you are in Christ, yeah. once you realize who God is, not only as the big, fearful God, the one who will crush you because you're a sinner, once you realize that that big, strong, fearful God also took the position of the lowest in Christ, who died for you, mm -hmm. so that you would not have to fear his wrath, all, then all the more he becomes even more fearful because if a God, how great is a God that would say, if you do not believe in me, you will die and eternally be condemned. But if you believe in me because of what I have done as God for you, how much greater is that for you? You know. But here, let me, let me, let me put these things in a different way. Okay? So there's fear. And when we hear fear, we think of bad things, yes. right? But here, let me, let me put this in a, in a different realm. There's two different kinds of fear that the Bible speaks about. There is um, filial fear and servile fear. Okay? Now, one, one is more... I, I don't, I don't want to put them in the black and white terms of good and bad, or positive and negative, but one is more desirable than the other, mm -hmm. okay? Um, servile fear is the fear of punishment, okay? That is the fear that says, if you do these bad things, bad things will happen to you. If you murder, you will be charged and you'll be tried and you'll go to prison, possibly facing the death penalty, right? That is a servile fear. It keeps you from sinning. It keeps you from doing bad things because there are negative consequences to your negative actions. Filial fear is the fear um, uh, let me see, the fear and I'm, I'm using strictly the word fear to show you the different kinds context of it, the fear a son has for his father. Or daughter. Yeah. Right. Right. But, I mean, I'm filial because that's what the word comes from. Yeah. Um, that philo or phile means son in, in, in Greek, I believe. So you see that this is, this is more positive. The filial fear is the fear that we should have as Christians for God. Mm -hmm. Saying, look at my dad, look at my God, I want to be just like him. 
I respect him. I fear him because, you know, it's, it's like what I've, I've heard this example and I love the example uh, that it's like when a, when a kid comes up to their dad and their dad is drinking a beer and the kid goes, hey, dad, can I try some of your beer? And he goes, okay, give a little sip. And the kid tries it and then he goes, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's really good, you know. But he wants to be like dad, right? He wants to be like dad because he respects him. He looks up to him. So that is that is the kind of fear that we ought to have as believers, looking up to Christ and saying, I want to be like him. I want to do what he did. And knowing that it's going to be hard. It's going to be like drinking the beer that doesn't taste good, but you know that, you know, it's being more like your dad. It's, it's like being a Christian and suffering like Christ has suffered, and saying, this doesn't feel good, this doesn't taste good, but Lord, I know that it is good for me because this is what Christ went through, right? I want to be more like Him. So that's, hopefully that gives you a different view of fear, yeah. right? Something to think about, because when we hear fear, we've been conditioned to think negatively about it. It's not always a bad thing. Um, and it's not always something that we should uh, try and correct, uh, because that's how the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about, you know, the fear of the Lord. But when we understand what that means, we can we actually begin here with servile fear, saying God is big and scary, and I don't know how to handle Him. But then when we see God through the lens of Jesus Christ, He makes Himself known in a way that we can actually approach him, and we say, oh, now I see him in a different way. I see him in a fearful way that says, I respect him, I want to be like him. Right? So hopefully that helps. Um, let's go to the apply section, and then we'll move on really quickly here to the rest of chapter 5 and 6. Um, so apply. Solomon wants us to stand in awe of God. How can we do this? By casting all our cares on Him. Yeah. Cast all your cares onto Jesus, right? Onto the Lord. Um, we acknowledge Him as the God of justice. Like um, People will say, like going back to the previous example of someone who will rage against God saying, why did you allow this to happen? It is evil, nothing, can good, nothing good can come from it, right? Um, people will say... People say all the time, or it's kind of become a cliche, and I hate that it's become a cliche, because it's actually a reality that some people will say, how can a loving God allow such bad things to happen? And, you know, for that, we can only say, well, God is more than just loving. I mean, to say that he is only loving, and he can only be fit within our understanding of love, which is fallen and sinful. Excuse me, I'm trying to shut it off. That's okay. Hush. <laughs> That's all right. That happens. When we, um, when we uh, have this, um, what was I saying? So, when we only have this limited view of God as if he were just a man like us, you know, our idea of love is limited. 
and our idea of justice is limited. He is a righteous, just, and loving God, all in one, beyond our full comprehension and beyond our understanding, right? But he is the one, and we trust in him for what he has promised and what he has fulfilled in his promise, that it doesn't make sense to us why bad things happen to seemingly good people. But we pray that God would make something good happen, right? Sometimes that happens, bad things happen to good people, mm -hmm. in order to show God's glory. Mm -hmm. That's you see, the way I kind of look at it. And that's the right way to look at it. Because, because when it's you... It's hard, it's hard. Like when my right. dad passed, I didn't know why he took him away. He was supposed mm -hmm. to live to be a hundred like his dad did. But mm -hmm. now that, and, and God's got perfect timing. Perfect timing for everything. I look back now, dad could not have lived the way we've lived this past year. It was a mercy in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have to look at it in a different perspective. And you couldn't see that no. at the time. No, because no, I was just feeling sorry for myself. You know, oh, you took him away from me. That's not right. I'm not ready for that. I want him to still be here. <laughs> sure. And you're probably the same way with Norman, you know. But, yeah. But you look back on it and you think, okay, it's all right. I, I am, he's in a much better place than where we are right now. Yep. God says you've suffered enough, good and faithful servant. Exactly. Yeah. And and it it is interesting to think of these things because um, although we are Christians, we still mourn. But as Paul says, we do not mourn as those who don't have hope. We we hate death. Death is never good. Uh, God does not desire the death of the sinner, right? But that he would turn, uh, turn away from his sin. That we, we look at death and we mourn and we say, this is a horrible thing. Look at what sin does. But thanks be to God that he has provided the one who has conquered death. That when he died, he didn't stay dead. And that all who believe in him and who trust in what he has done they are immortal, just like he is. And although you may die, and you are in the grave, those who die in Christ won't stay dead. On that last day, you will be the fruits of the resurrection. Right? Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep. That as he has, as he has been raised from the dead, so we will rise. Thanks be to God. God be praised for this great, great thing. And that's not to wash away our mournful, our mournful state when we're suffering because we've lost someone. It truly is sad. But we mourn because of the current sorrow in light of the future joy that will be had. And that takes faith. The world doesn't understand that, but it takes faith, and we only know that from God's Word, too, right? Um, let's move on here uh, for the sake of time. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. 
Um, I'll read those real quick for us so that we can just kind of move on through this. Um, we'll we'll kind of move a little quicker for the sake of time. We've talked about some great things, but kind of need to get through these things. Uh, if we can get through chapter five and then a, then the rest of chapter six, I think we'll be in good good position here. So Ecclesiastes chapter five verses eight through twenty. Um, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official and higher officials over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance will increase. But nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he, shall he return. To go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil, just, as, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here's what I have seen. It is good and, f and fitting for one to eat and drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and given him power to eat of it, to receive this heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. All right. Uh, in this, for the look portion, verses 8 and 9, uh, our sheet says, This section needs some explanation. Solomon observed that the poor are oppressed. Their money is taken from them by local authorities, and they are denied justice. Solomon wants us to realize that there is a chain of greed in place. Each authority has a higher authority over it committing the same injustices toward the one directly under it. At the top is the king. Right? So when he says, do not marvel at the matter, he means don't marvel at this as if this were entirely impossible or entirely unexpected. I mean, what is, what is the saying? It's not from the Bible, but what, what is it about power? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Um... It's a true proverb, uh, which I, I know Scripture mentions in some form or fashion, right? That sort of understanding. 
Um, but we, we need to understand that, that that's what that means. Don't marvel at this, right? Uh, wealth is meaningless. I mean, we're here on the discuss portion. Wealth is meaningless and a source of difficulty for those who have it. Why? And, and we won't go through every one of these verses, but you know, pick, pick one or two or from these verses, verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 through 17, right? And specifically verse 17, wealth is meaningless and a source of difficulty for those who have it. Why? What stood out the most to you? Always want more. Never enough. You always want more. It's never enough. Fear of losing it. Fear of losing it, right? Um, no amount of money can satisfy a person's deepest longings. That uh, anybody who's searching after something material is trying to fill the God-sized hole in their heart, kind of like what that's kind of a saying, right? That. Um, uh, Augustine said something like that. St. Augustine says something, I forget, in his confessions. Oh, saying, saying that, you know, um, that our hearts are restless until we find rest in Christ. So, um, so, and yeah, we're, uh, we are going until the half hour, so 11.30. If y'all have to go, you can go. That's fine. Um, I'm not going to hold you here against your will. Um, uh, Christian freedom, as it were, right? No, we don't want people to, to begrudge being here, for sure. Um, if you got to go, you got to go. No big deal. Um, the person who loves wealth spends his days trying to accumulate more. It can never be enough, right? His days are filled with self-imposed frustration, affliction, and anger. In other words, he spends his days in darkness. All of this underscores the meaningless of life. Um, so, point two here. Um, in contrast to the frustration of the rich man, how does the working man spend his nights? Sleep. Yeah, he sleeps. Peace. What? He's tired. Yeah, he's tired. Uh, this reminds me of Psalm 123, another psalm of ascent, where um, the psalm, I don't know who wrote it, but a prayer, uh, yeah, so a song of ascents, where Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 123 says, have, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Right? That is to say that if your life is easier, you're not content. Right? That if your life is easier... You have nothing to strive against. You have nothing to work for. You're restless. Sounds like a lot of people today, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, sadly, and, and you know, it sounds like a lot of people who are retired, too. People who don't have anything left to do, they get restless. Uh, you, see, you see guys who work their entire lives, the, you know, 9 to 5, they... They work hard for, you know, 30, 40 years. They retire, 
and they think, I'm just going to do nothing. They're dead in 10 to 15 years. Right? Because they have nothing to live for. They have nothing to live for. You've got to fill your time with something and something worthwhile. Right? Um, which is why you see like in uh, Luke uh, with Simeon and Anna, they spent all their time in the temple. They were praying. They were busy. And one of my... One of our professors at the seminary, um, he said he was he was an Old Testament professor, and when when he was a pastor in Iowa, I believe someone came and said, you know, pastor, I'm tired. I'm going to retire, and I'm not going to do anything. And he goes, okay, so then you're ready to die. <laughs> and the guy goes, whoa, well, I don't know about that. And he said, well, you know, Moses. He went and went and went. God had something for him to do up until the moment he died. So if you say that there's nothing left for you to do, all that's left is death. I mean, it sounds harsh, but it should get you thinking, right? There's always something to do as long as you're alive and here on this earth. And, you know, one thing that we're going to be working with, uh, working for is even those people who are shut in, um, uh, we as a church, but spearheaded by my lovely wife here, she is going to send out monthly things to the shut-ins to say, here are ways that you can pray. Here are ways that you can fill your time in a very meaningful way. Prayer is important, and you have that time on your hands. Please pray in these ways for these people, you know, because that's what we have to do for each other. The very least you can pray, and at the very most you can pray. Right? But if we are at ease the whole time, we have nothing but contempt. Because nothing to do. We have no we have nothing to do. Yeah. I think that's one of the big problems with like the younger people too, is they have so much leisure time in in, in a sense. You know, they're not doing physical labor, as yeah. it were. And man is meant to work work against or for or just strive against things and when there's nothing out there whether it's a family you know you're not seeing our young people getting married and having that care yep. um when you have nothing to take care of outside of yourself you start to wrestle with yourself you look inward and i mean there are high high rates of suicide right now and drug problems and it's because they're wrestling with themselves and ourselves we're sinful <laughs> I mean, these lockdowns from all these other states where they're saying you have to lock down for your protection, everybody's protection. I mean, in a world that has so forsaken God and you're left alone by yourself and you dive into the depths of what Ecclesiastes gets into, that it's all vanity and striving after wind, if that's all you have, then Satan has a good case against you as to say, well, why are you even still breathing? Just end it. There's nothing. It's tremendously tragic and sad. Lord, have mercy on us as a people, as a country, um, that we would realize what's truly important, that we would realize that the Lord gives us certain things to do for our neighbor, you know, to love them, to care for them, hopefully by his love, right? Otherwise, it's done in vain. So we see... This interesting thing where the rich man uh, is contrasted with the working man. No matter how much the working man has, he sleeps in peace. Puts his hand to his task. He does his job. 
And then he he's tired. <laughs> right. Um, what? Let's just that, answer this, this 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 question real quick. What is the best a person can do in life? How long can a person achieve such a life? What's the best a person can do in life? And keep in mind, this is Old Testament understanding that Solomon was looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. And in the same way, we can take this and understand it in the same way. But what is the best a person can do in life? What does it say towards the end there? Pray, praise, and give thanks. <laughs> yeah, pray, praise, and give thanks, you know, um, that he can be get, that he can be content with what God gives him and give God thanks for what he's given, right? And pray for what you need and God will give it to you. That's right. And believe. Right. Right. Trust that God will do these things. Right. Um, trust that God will do these things. Um, okay, let's... I'm going to read through chapter 6 real quick, and we'll, we'll touch on this next page only deals, like, there's only like two or three questions that deal with chapter 6, so we'll just cut that off there. Um, so chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, he goes on kind of in the same thought, right? Uh, Solomon writes, or says, there is, uh, there is, um, excuse me, there is, an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness... Or indeed he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the, 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 excuse me, the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man. He can, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? So, we're only going to touch on a few parts of chapter 6 here, but... Um, this is kind of a, this is, this, this is a tough thing to talk about, but on what basis can the teacher say, can Solomon say that a stillborn child is better off than a prosperous person who cannot enjoy his or her blessings? What do y'all think? 
straight to God? Yeah, well, there's... This is a hard thing to talk about because there are so many unknowns here. That it's, but at the very least, we can say that that child that was that died before it was born doesn't have to suffer the consequences of sin like we do. Um, doesn't have to experience the pain and misery of what we do, striving for wealth and things that won't satisfy, you know. Um, and the child had at least nine months of contentment. <laughs> Being cared for. Yep. Yeah. No pain, nothing to worry about. Yeah, Just nothing to worry about. Eat and grow. And... Yeah. You know, viewed from the standpoint of resting in peace, that kid's better off. Because otherwise, there's a man who strives and strives and strives, works himself to the bone, rises up early, goes to bed late, he eats the bread of anxious toil, as the psalm says, uh, striving after wind, only to die and have all of his contentment die with him. Right. Or have all of his effort die with him. That is sad. That's what Solomon is saying. That child who dies in the womb is to be pitied and mourned for tremendously. But it is almost, it is, it, it, he's saying comparatively, it is sadder that a man lives his entire life, that he is given the gift of life, he is given the gift of seeing God's good gifts, and he still is not happy. Not enough. Squandered it. It's all gone. So. Okay. Um, let's, let's jump down to the apply section here. In, in verses, 12, verses 11 and 12, Solomon gives us some sobering words to talk about. How does verse 12 help us control our thoughts and words? So verses 11 and 12, um, Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Yep. Nobody can judge whether you're a believer or not. And when you die, you may go to hell. <laughs> well, here's the thing. That um, we cannot understand life and we don't know what's really best for us. We can only kind of answer for ourselves on certain things. Um, and when it comes to judgment on somebody, um, we can't do it. We can't do it. But we can be quiet about these things and pray that God is doing the right thing no matter what happens. Right? That we place ourselves trustingly into God's hands no matter what. Um, we don't have time to go into all, all of what you mentioned, Tim. I wish we did. We can probably begin next time if you want to deal with that. Uh, big, big issue there. But... He's basically saying, you know, we don't know what comes after us. And therefore, we should fear the Lord. We should have this fear and respect that He knows what He's doing, that His ways are always good, and that whatever happens that is evil, He's allowing to happen for some reason that we can't see. So we fear Him, meaning that we respect His position. We trust that he knows what he's doing. We trust 
that all these things will be good, especially, as Romans says, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Okay. We'll stop there. It's a lot. <laughs> we'll stop there. We're a little over time. Sorry for keeping you a little bit longer. Um, but we'll, we'll uh, go ahead and just uh, close out here with uh, the Lord's Prayer and any other comments and things like that you'll, you'll have. We can talk about it afterwards. But anybody who needs to go can go after this. So let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.